Welcome to Navara Live. I'm Michael Walker. I'm joined by Ash Saka. Ash, how are you doing? I'm all right. Um, although somewhat alarmed as we'll discuss in the show that we seem to be in a full-fledged moral panic about British Muslims, which makes me feel a bit worried about what I can and can't say. Yeah, I mean, incredibly shocking. Uh, like discourse in this in this country is just spinning out of control. Um, just before we went live, I sort of tweeted a screenshot of um, Adam Langlaban, who's sort of director of Progressive Britain. That was what Progress used to be. So he's he's essentially accusing me of Holocaust denial because I have said that we should probably not just accept state agencies in a war when one of when one of them tells us what has happened. We should wait for independent verification from, say, the BBC or Associated Press. That now makes you a Holocaust denier. We are in a very strange place. And you might think, well, it's strange times or in war. I would say those are the moments when it's most important um, to have some integrity, to be able to sit back and look at different viewpoints, wait for verification. But no, people want us to just blindly follow um, what the Israelis say, or we're essentially anti-Semitic. That seems to be what lots of people are saying online right now, many of them rather influential as well. I find it rather worrying. Um, what we will be talking about tonight, updates, of course, on the latest situation in Gaza and the West Bank. Um, the Israeli president comes out with some dodgy looking evidence. Are we allowed to say that? And Sky News have finally apologized for Kay Burley's made up quote from the Palestinian ambassador. Um, stay tuned for all of that. Let's go to our first story. As Israel continues its relentless bombardment of Gaza, growing numbers of people are rejecting the idea that its actions are just a matter of self-defense. This weekend, huge demonstrations took place in cities across the West in support of Palestinians. In Paris, over 15,000 people attended France's first authorized pro-Palestinian rally since the government banned such protests after the October 7th Hamas attacks. That ban was overturned last Thursday in the courts. Thousands also gathered in New York calling for a ceasefire, an end to the siege and a free Palestine. But perhaps the biggest protest of all um, took place in London. Police said 100,000 protesters marched across the capital in support of Palestine. Organisers said 300,000 attended. Either way, it was even bigger than last week's demonstration. The protest was, of course, peaceful. The police have said only 34 arrests have been made, and those were mainly for offences involving fireworks and public order, though some people have also been arrested on suspicion of shouting racist abuse. Still, it's a tiny number out of a 100,000 strong crowd, if not more. But at a separate and smaller protest organised by pan-Islamist group Hizbut Tahrir, video emerged of a man chanting, quote, Jihad, Jihad. Now, having reviewed the film, the Met Police released this statement. In addition to officers deployed with the protest, we have counter-terrorism officers with specialist language skills and subject expertise working alongside public order officers in our main operations room, assessing any video and photos that emerge. They have reviewed a video from the Hizbut Tahrir protest in which a man can be seen to chant jihad, jihad. The word has a number of meanings, but we know the public will most commonly associate it with terrorism, specialist Officers have assessed the video and have not identified any offences arising from the specific clip. We have also sought advice from the Specialist Crown Prosecution Service lawyers who have reached the same conclusion. However, recognising the way language like this will be interpreted by the public and the divisive impact it will have, officers identified the man involved and spoke to him to discourage any repeat of similar chanting. Now, as that statement says, the word jihad has a number of 
meanings. It has sometimes been taken to refer to holy war, but it's also used to mean struggle, striving, or effort. The context really matters. And in this context, the police judged that no crime was committed. They warned the man that chanting it could be found offensive. Now, that all sounds remarkably reasonable for the Metropolitan Police. And it was too reasonable for some, including our Home Secretary, whose comments were splashed across this morning's front pages. The Daily Mail, led with Suella's fury at Met over jihad chants. And this was today's Telegraph, Braverman challenged to Met over jihad chanting. On Sky, Immigration Minister Robert Jenrick also thought the police had made the wrong call, saying this. Let me be clear, chanting... Uh, jihad on the streets of London is completely reprehensible. And I never want to see scenes like that. Uh, it is inciting terrorist violence, and it needs to be tackled with the full force of the law. Ultimately, uh, it's an operational matter for the police and the CPS whether uh, to okay. press charges. Arrests have been made, and there has been oh, really? um, that there have been arrests uh, since the beginning of uh, this situation. And we want to make sure that the police do everything that they can to protect the British Jews. Under terrorism legislation? Um, there have been arrests under terrorist legislation. And we want to do everything that we can to okay. protect British Jews. Okay. But, but this is a broader okay. question beyond just legality. It also is a question about values. And there should be a consensus in this country that uh, chanting uh, things like jihad is completely reprehensible and wrong, All right. and we don't ever want to see that in our country. Minister These are now the experts. So the Metropolitan Police have their experts on the meaning of, of words such as jihad. Um, the Tory government and our right-wing press have another. They're not interested in the complexities or the nuances. They've got their own expertise, which they you know, just seem to have landed in front of them. Um, Suella Bravman has now met with Met Commissioner Mark Rowley, who said um, this after their meeting. I was explaining how we are absolutely ruthless in tackling anybody who puts their foot over the legal line. We're accountable to law. We can't enforce taste or decency, but we can enforce the law. Um, and we've made um, 34 arrests so far over the recent process. We've got another two, 22 cases on the back of those where we're searching for individuals, trying to identify people from photos. Um, and um, our counter-terrorism teams have got 150 cases triaged out of the 1,500 referrals, 100, 150 cases of behaviour online, which is of deep concern that we're, and we're going, after those, um, going after those individuals. So there's a massive amount of operational work going on, and it's important you can help, frankly, with um, making that visible to communities that we're doing that because we really get this. And then the conversation finished really around the line of the law, and it's our job to enforce to that line. It's Parliament's job to draw that line. As Rowley says there, it's up to politicians to change the law if they want to. Um, so will they? Well, asked by Sky whether the government had any plans to change the law, a Downing Street spokesperson said, quote, not that I'm aware of. Um, I wonder why. So it seems again, Ash, like we're in a situation um, where the government doesn't feel confident enough to actually change the law, potentially because they'd have to run it past some experts, but they're more than happy um, to go mouth off to the press um, to say that the, the police should arrest some people for saying stuff they don't like. Um, what do you reckon? 
I mean, this reminds me so much of what it was like to be Muslim during the War on Terror era. Because if you cast your mind back to that time period of around 2001 onwards, our entire political class became obsessed with this idea of nonviolent extremism. Now, of course, people can have extremist ideas and not act violently upon them. And we wouldn't necessarily say it's really great for a society where lots of people have those ideas. But when you try and get the state to crack down on so-called nonviolent extremism, you run into some problems because one, there's an extreme amount of selectiveness at play. So nonviolent extremism was something that was being looked for in the Muslim community. It wasn't something that was being looked for amongst other demographics. So I would say that nonviolent extremism isn't unique to any one particular group. But if you go looking for it in one particular community, it's that phenomenon that you see in policing. If you go looking for it in a community, you'll find it. And then you say, look, this proves us right. It's disproportionately present in this community. No, that's just where you're looking. Um, the lines about what constituted nonviolent extremism were so broadly drawn. It meant that through the PREVENT program, the counter-extremism program run by the government, you ended up in an absurd situation where children who had drawn pictures of their dad at home using a pressure cooker or waving a cucumber were being brought in because teachers were so hysterical. They worked themselves up into a lather thinking that, you know, this five-year-old, six-year-old had drawn their dad with a big knife or with a bomb. Now, I personally would think that even if a child had drawn those things, that's a matter for a teacher to deal with, not counter-terror police. But that was the sort of climate around nonviolent extremism. Similarly, Muslim students, one who, I kid you not, was a researcher in counter-terror legislation, uh, was pulled into prevent because they thought it was suspicious that he was going into the library and researching terrorism. So this framework of nonviolent extremism, what it did was it created really flimsy pretexts to crack down, monitor and surveil and indeed criminalize Muslims in this country for behavior that wasn't violent and wouldn't be criminal. And so this whole moral panic that we're seeing at the moment around chanting from the river to the sea to now what's being said about jihad is about finding lawful freedom of expression. And because it's associated with Muslims, and because in this instance, it can also be presented as anti-Semitic, using it as a pretext for another moral panic and another crackdown. Now, the thing about the word jihad, as you explained, Michael, it is a complex word with an awful lot of meanings in Arabic. So it translates to struggle or striving. And how it's generally used by Muslims is to describe the struggle to live a life personally or build a world in which it's in line with Islamic principles. So people can talk about their own jihad, their own struggles to quit drinking or live differently or be kinder. Or, of course, people have used the word jihad to refer to violent holy war. But it is in terms of, you know, Islamic theology, really broad and really complicated. So when you've got this huffing and puffing from Robert Jenrick, who I doubt speaks Arabic, it always means terrorism. You know, the law's going to have to look at that. If you did try and introduce legislation uh, curtailing use of the word jihad, you would end up raiding every mosque up and down the country and arresting imams who are helping their congregants quit smoking. It would be that absurd. So I'm not surprised that 
Downing Street have said, look, we've got no plans to change the law. They couldn't do it. It would be unworkable. But in terms of the media climate and what's being um, created here, it's a climate in which Muslims who are seen to be doing anything that's scary, and of course, what is deemed to be scary from Muslims is deeply inflected by racism and Islamophobia, then you suddenly have all of these journalists, all of these politicians running around like cut snakes going, oh my God, why isn't this made illegal? And that's how a moral panic powers itself. You, you, you establish that there's a particular thing that's really scary. You go looking for it, you find it, you take it out of context, that serves as a pretext to make everyone even more scared. And in terms of what that did during the war on terror uh, from 2001 onwards, it was really ugly. It involved Muslims being put on control orders, which was um, a way of denying people their basic civil liberties, uh, denying them in some aspects, you know, a right to legal representation. Uh, you know, they were subject to secret courts. You saw some really awful things in terms of extraordinary rendition. Now, I'm not saying that we're we're close to that point now. But that's what can happen when you have a racist moral panic in this country. And I would have hoped that our media classes would have learned from the mistakes of the early 2000s rather than just rushing headlong to make them again. While some in the government might be hinting at changing the law to ban chants of jihad, others are calling for more extreme action. Daily Mail columnist Dan Hodges posted this on Twitter. The right to protest must be safeguarded, but it's clear that over the last two weekends, London's Jewish community has felt directly intimidated by the Gaza demonstrations. That's it now. The point's been made. There should be no further demos allowed for the foreseeable future. So the right to protest must be safeguarded, but only twice. You, you have a sacrosanct right to protest twice, but a third time, no, 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 no. Now, this would be perfectly reasonable, actually, I think, if after the second protest... They ended the siege of Gaza. They ended the occupation of Gaza. They stopped bombing Gaza. Um, and they ended apartheid in Israel-Palestine. If that were all the case, great. Major point. Got what you wanted. We can all go home now. None of those things have happened, right? So you can't say, you've made your point. We're going to keep... Well, he is backing the bombing of Gaza. We're going to keep bombing Gaza. We're going to keep backing it. Um, and you've made your point. Stay at home now because some other people feel uncomfortable about this. Now, that is the most undemocratic tweet I have seen in a very long time sent by a British commentator. You know, unfortunately, it seems incredibly extreme, right? Well, I mean, it is incredibly extreme. But um, France, as we've said, did ban pro-Palestine protests, been overturned by the courts. In Germany, pro-Palestine protests are still banned. You saw sort of police stamping on um, candles during a candlelit vigil um, for um, people who were being bombarded in, in Gaza. So it seems extreme, it is extreme, but it is the norm in some places. Very, very worrying. Um, meanwhile, this was the front page of today's Sun. Unbelievable, in the middle of a tube sign, fury at tube drivers anti-Israel chants over train tannoy. But clueless TFL bosses claim they don't know who he is. Now that front page, outrage on central line, it says. That front page is referring to footage that emerged over the weekend, um, appearing to show a tube driver singing or saying free Palestine over a loudspeaker to passengers heading to um, the pro-Palestine or Palestine Solidarity March. Um, on LBC, political editor of the Jewish News, Lee Harpin gave his opinion um, on the footage. Even in the most peaceful of times, no um, tube driver should enter into political debate over a tannoy on a tube train. But 
I think we also have to look at what this chant actually means. Um, it's quite undefined, but to a lot of Jewish people at the moment, free, free Palestine means the annihilation of the world's only Jewish state. A lot of us have family and friends in that state, and we only have to go back a couple of weeks to October the 7th to see what the annihilation of the Jewish state would look like. So it's very frightening to us. Now, I'm not saying free, free Palestine always means that. It could very well mean a free Palestine alongside a safe and secure Israel, but it's it's ill-defined and, you know, at a time of horrible conflict in the Middle East, it, uh, no train driver should be using it. What do you think should happen to this one then? Should he just, should it be a, uh, a a word? Do you think he, I mean, who knows what his, his motivation is? I mean, you know, we yeah. have absolutely no idea, but this is the sort of, you know, fairly low-level internet which can really get under your skin, and I, I have sympathy with you. Yeah, exactly. I mean... I suspect um, it will probably be a, a ticking off or a warning from his employer rather than um, any prosecution in court, although I might be wrong, um, if he is to be found guilty. Um, but it just needs to be stopped. People need to think. You know, it's a time of great tension. The Jewish community in this country feels massively under pressure, as I know does the um, does the Muslim community. And I, I was actually speaking to Sadiq Khan last week myself because he's, he really has been trying to... Um, doing upmodes to to avoid tensions escalating out of control. And I think he will probably be, you know, he, he would be as infuriated as anybody over this. Now, if free Palestine is triggering to you, I really think that might be cause to have some introspection yourself, right? If you think that you can't possibly be secure if Palestinians are free, then maybe you've taken a wrong turn somewhere, right? If free Palestine, very simple demand, free Palestine, if even that is too much, if that is offensive, if that worries you, maybe you need to rethink your politics a little bit, right? Because if, if, if you can't be free and happy if Palestinians are free, then that doesn't say anything particularly positive, right? And um, the idea he's suggesting that maybe this guy should be prosecuted for that, for saying free Palestine. Now, of course, I don't, I mean, I, I've just actually seen on the ticker on Sky News that this guy's apparently been suspended now by his employer. Got no idea what's written in his contract, you know, about what it says about whether you sort of say a political slogan on the tannoy. I don't know if that breaches his contract or not. I can pretty much guarantee that if this was going to a Ukraine demo and a tube driver said Slava Ukraine, there wouldn't have been the same moral panic about it and he probably would have kept his job, right? Um, so, you know, I don't know the employment law around this, but the idea that this was an abhorrent thing to say, that this was a threatening thing to say and that potentially this guy should be prosecuted, I think is is completely bizarre. Um, Ash, Dan Hodges thinks that you should have two two demos only, um, three strikes and you're out. And um, Lee Harpin thinks that you should potentially be, or is suggesting, sort of implying that one might be prosecuted for saying free Palestine on a tannoy system. So I think there's something really deeply ironic here, because one of the things that the right accuses the left of is invoking anti-racism in order to clamp down on legitimate free speech. And the way that narrative usually goes is a kind of cancel culture moral panic. So they go, oh, you just keep calling everyone racist because you want to curtail my freedom of speech. Now, I'm not saying that there isn't sometimes a censorious vein within the left, but Generally, what's being criticized there is the idea that someone has said something, there's a harsh backlash whether they're being called racist, and that is in itself 
being presented as an assault on freedom of speech. It very rarely is the case that we're talking about calls for prosecution, um, clamping down wholesale on the ability to protest, or in this case, someone being suspended from their job. But when it comes to invoking Jewish people and invoking Jewish people's sense of threat, the right have no problem with invoking anti-racism in order to clamp down on legitimate and lawful freedom of speech, like lawful protest, like saying free, free Palestine, or indeed from the river to the sea. And I think that this is something which, um, to to perhaps reference a a, a friend of the show who we've discussed previously, uh, talking about David Baddiel's thesis in Jews Don't Count. The thesis of that book is that, well, all of the most egregious examples of how the left get their own way by invoking the experience of particular minorities, usually black people, Muslim people, trans people, Jewish people should have that too. Right. And that's the argument of his book, which is that that would be the really liberal and equal thing to do. But of course, one, it was, I always, I think, a misunderstanding of how um, calling out racism has functioned. And two, how this is being used in the society that we have and the politics that we have today, this way in which the right appropriate the Jewish experience and use it as a shield for very authoritarian ends tells you that that kind of discourse of, well, if I say I feel threatened, that means you have to act on it, regardless of whether or not what you've done is actually wrong or breaches the law, um, that that's not a pathway towards equality. It's certainly not a pathway towards a more progressive society. And I think that this is something which people have found hard to articulate because when someone tells you they feel a sense of threat and they feel unsafe, of course you want to take it seriously. And I think that it is important not to lose your empathy for that feeling. But what we're seeing from the likes of Lee Harpin uh, saying that free, free Palestine can mean the annihilation of the world's only Jewish state. So Dan Hodges saying that, you know, these protests have made Jewish people feel unsafe is that there's a very concerted effort in the media to make Jewish people feel very scared of the Palestinian cause. And that's not me trying to say that the nuances of the issue, the nuances of how Jewish people in the diaspora relate to and feel about the state of Israel, that all of that is just, you know, a media-driven moral panic. But this, this presentation of Jewish people's sense of security as being at odds with the lawful right to protest and the lawful right to free expression when it comes to the Palestinian cause, that is, I think, a project of political and media elites in order to marginalize the left, number one, and two, to sort of advance Islamophobia as the norm, a way of looking at the political activities of people who are Muslim or aligned with Muslims and saying this has no place in a liberal and democratic society. I also think it's very worrying because, you know, the way this is often phrased, Dan Hodges did it, obviously, is that sort of this is about community relations. You know, if, if we want to all get on as a society, um, we have to stamp down on things that make one group or other feel uncomfortable. Now, I don't think, you know, if, 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 if an ethnic minority is feeling uncomfortable about something, that should be taken seriously, absolutely. I, I don't think that should just be dismissed out of hand. But if your response is to say that hundreds of thousands of people who are very, very worried about people being ethnically cleansed can't express their opinions about that 
then you're going into very dangerous territory. And I would say that'd be quite bad for community relations, right? If, if you tell a lot of people, I mean, I was at the protest on Saturday and I, I think it's also worth noting, the reason this is causing this moral panic is because it's working, right? If you look at what British politicians thought they could get away with two weeks ago and what they think they can get away with now, there's been a massive transformation. Now, obviously, the transformation is not nearly as, 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 as big as we would have hoped it had been. But a couple of weeks ago, all any British politician would say is, Israel has a right to defend itself. Israel has a right to defend itself. Even if they're starving Gazans of, of food, water, and medicines, Israel has a right to defend themselves. Now, we've seen with Keir Starmer, sort of the, the mess he's got himself in, because he realized that line was no longer sustainable. The reason that line is no longer sustainable is because people have poured out onto the streets and politicians have been reminded, oh, actually, people do care about Palestine. Because you know what? You know, they're in their bubble. They're thinking, oh, it's this foreign policy issue. Who really cares? Who really cares about the Palestinians? Maybe Israel can just quietly push 2 million Gazans into the Sinai Peninsula close to Egypt or within Egypt, right? Maybe they can just do that. And I think what this mass public outpouring has shown is that, no, no, um, Israel can't just get away with that. And if they try, there's going to be a massive cost, not just for Israel, but for Western politicians. If they seen in any way to collaborate with the ethnic cleansing of Palestinians, then that's not going to go down well with a large chunk of the British population. Palestine really mobilizes people. And if you try and say, oh, well, this is uncomfortable, let's ban people from doing it. And you know, obviously people on those marches from all different backgrounds, but there are lots of people on those marches from Muslim backgrounds because they see that there are Muslim or Arab people in a different part of the world being oppressed essentially for their race and religion, right? If, if, if those people can't go out and express their opposition to people like them being ethnically cleansed, then what is that going to do for community relations, right? Uh, that, that doesn't seem like a particularly healthy response to me on any level. And let's just close this by saying, yes, the reason this moral panic is happening is because this works. Um, if you haven't been on a pro-Palestine demo yet and have been sort of seeing these headlines and wondering if any of it's true, I would recommend you to go on a pro-Palestine demo as soon as possible because the experience I had on, on Saturday was just overwhelming. All different sorts of people, different ages, different backgrounds, and very much united in saying, we don't want to see a people ethnically cleansed with the support of the British government, right? Not actually a radical demand. Next story, very much related. Israel has intensified its assault on Gaza, reportedly killing 436 Palestinians in the last 24 hours alone. These were scenes from the Sheikh Radwan neighborhood of Gaza City, where families with children were seen fleeing Israeli missile strikes. According to the UN, 42% of housing in the Gaza Strip has now been destroyed or damaged. The IDF warned Palestinians to move out of northern Gaza or risk being identified as terrorists. But the South isn't proving much safer than the homes they've fled. Residents of Khan Yunis say they've suffered the most intense night of airstrikes so far. The IDF claims to have hit 320 targets across Gaza in the last 24 hours. This footage, released by Israel, shows the massive and deadly air power Israel is able to deploy. And at least one of the IDF's targets was within the Jabalia refugee camp north of Gaza City. This footage shows a young woman being dug out of the rubble there after a blast. 30 bodies were reportedly recovered from the ruins. According to Gazan officials, more than 5,000 Palestinians have now died in IDF attacks and over 15,000 have been injured. A disaster in a territory where a dozen hospitals and 32 health centres are now out of service. But for the 2.2 million residents of Gaza, including 1 million who are now displaced, it's not just airstrikes that threaten their lives, but also Israel's siege. 
And despite noisy diplomatic efforts, only a small number of relief trucks have crossed the border from Egypt. Today, a third convoy consisting of 20 trucks entered Gaza via the Rafa crossing, which is on top of the 34 that passed through over the weekend. But it's not nearly enough for a population in need of food, water, medicine and fuel. With temperatures hitting 31 degrees, the UN warned children are already being forced to drink dirty water. And in a further grim warning, doctors have said that up to 130 premature babies will die if fuel doesn't reach hospitals with neonatal units soon. So the humanitarian situation in Gaza is catastrophic, but Palestinians outside of the enclave are not immune to the effects of war. A mosque has been bombed in the Jenin refugee camp located in the occupied West Bank. It's the second recent airstrike on the West Bank where more than 90 people have now been killed. And what's this all for? Well, it's still very unclear what Israel actually wants to achieve from this deadly war. And there are already some signs they are scaling back their original unrealistic plan to completely destroy Hamas. That's what they were saying they would do. This was from a Financial Times piece over the weekend. Israel's defense minister, Yoav Gallant, said Israel's war with Hamas would fall into three phases, with the first consisting of the current aerial bombardment and ground operations aimed at neutralizing terrorists and destroying Hamas infrastructure. He said the second phase would involve lower intensity fighting to eliminate pockets of resistance in Gaza. And the third would require the removal of Israel's responsibility for life in the Gaza Strip and the establishment of a new security reality for Israelis. Other ministers have hinted at how the government's thinking is evolving, with Agriculture Minister Avi Dikta on Thursday saying Israel would enforce a buffer zone within the Gaza Strip once the war was over to prevent Gazans from coming close to the border. So it's interesting this. I mean, lots of people from all sides of the political spectrum are basically saying it's very unclear what Israel's war aims are, you know, beyond just revenge and collective punishment of, of Gazan people. I think initially it seemed quite clear that they thought, well, this is a huge atrocity, right? We can use this to do something pretty dramatic that we've been wanting to do for a long time, which was essentially to expel Gazans to the Sinai Peninsula, part of Egypt, and just clear the land, take it over, essentially ethnically cleanse the whole of Gaza. I think the international backlash since then has has made them sort of recoil from some of those most extreme um, intentions. But now, I mean, so from this Financial Times article and from these statements from from Israeli politicians, it seems they they seem to be landing on this idea that they'll create a buffer zone between Gaza and Israel, which will obviously be on Gazan territory, not on Israeli territory. So further shrinking Gaza, which is already an incredibly densely populated strip of land. And they're also saying that while now, you know, Israel de facto administers Gaza because it controls its it, its borders and some people are able to to come through to work in Israel, now they're just going to completely cut it off so they'll have nothing to do with it and they, it will be behind this, this buffer zone so they can forget about it altogether. Now, this seems um, impractical to me and it also seems very dishonest because it, what they're saying is essentially we will leave Gaza to its own device. It's very similar to what it said in 2005 when they withdrew, when they withdrew Israeli troops and settlements. But... Of course, they are not going to lift the siege, are they? Because if they lift the siege, they're going to say, well, there'll be more rockets in Gaza, which will come to Israel. So they're saying we're going to wash our hands of Gaza whilst I presume stopping, you know, anything going in and out, which means that Gaza can have, you know, can function as an area. So to me, this is still equally unsustainable. I still don't think they have any kind of war goals that make any sense, which is probably why they're taking quite a while before they go into Gaza because they don't know what they want. Ash, what do you make of sort of this lack of clarity about what 
Israel would want and, you know, why they're why they're committing, I mean, they're committing all these war crimes because they don't really care about Palestinians. But what we're hearing from sort of British politicians, they have a right to defend themselves. Well, how are they defending themselves? What what are they doing here that's going to make Israelis safer in the future? Well, I think one of the things which also explains why the plans for a ground invasion have changed so much from the weekend of October 7th till now. One is, of course, the international backlash, international backlash, which is putting pressure on Western governments, which means that Netanyahu's government can't go in uh, with the full, full, full backing of the United States in particular. But Netanyahu's also in a very dicey position domestically as well. And this is an interesting contrast between the tenor of British media about Israel and Israeli media about Israel, because it seems to me that our media is treating this as a 9-11 kind of scenario without any criticism, without any real analysis. It's just, we're going to back you all the way. But what is being discussed in Israeli media is pretty critical of Netanyahu. Now, not I mean, most of that isn't to do with the treatment of the Palestinians. It's to do with the fact that, one, October the 7th represented a massive security breach. And if you're the guy who's been running for election saying no one else is going to be able to keep you safe, no one else is going to be able to keep Hamas contained, no one else is going to be able to thwart the existence of a Palestinian state, being the guy who's in charge um, during the single biggest loss of Israeli life in the nation's history, um, that tells you that you've really fucked up on the job. I mean, like something has gone really, really wrong in terms of what you're saying security apparatus is able to do and what it was actually able to do. There's also that question of Egypt having reported warnings that something was going to happen. To what extent did Israel's security apparatus fail to take those warnings seriously? Um, the second thing, which is an ongoing crisis for Netanyahu, is this question of the hostages. So Haaretz was reporting that some hostages were killed by IDF fire, that there was an IDF position that obliterating the Hamas fighters was a bigger priority than the safe recovery of the hostages. And that's, of course, made friends and family and loved ones of those hostages deeply, deeply upset. And there's the ongoing strategy around hostage release. So the Israeli position is basically, we're going to keep bombing Gaza, we're going to cut Gaza off from food, from water, from electricity, until there is an unconditional release of the hostages. At various points, this has been reported by NBC and Al Jazeera, there's been some offers from Hamas of releasing some of the hostages uh, the night of the Anglican hospital bombing. There were reports emerging in NBC that Hamas had made an offer to release hostages in return for the release of women and children who had been incarcerated by the Israeli state. Israel is saying, no, our position is unconditional release. So again, if you're family member or a friend or a loved one of one of the hostages or you know people who are in that position and what you're seeing is well hang on why aren't you moving heaven and earth to get these people back as a first priority and then what's going on with palestinians as a second priority that again puts netanyahu in a very dicey position 
what all of this adds up to is that he's sort of boxed in where he can't back down from a ground invasion. So Yoav Gallant has been parading in front of the IDF saying the moment will come soon, really, really geeing people up. But also the Netanyahu government isn't confident that it can absorb the political fallout for if there is a big loss of life on the Israeli side. So for many decades now, Israel hasn't really been fighting ground wars. It's been pursuing a policy of mostly aerial bombardment. A ground invasion is very, very different, particularly when you're looking at close quarters urban combat, which is what would be going on in Gaza. That's not something where one side, even if it is technologically a lot better kitted out and better funded, you're not as insulated from loss of life as you are when there's an aerial bombardment and you're just having to deal with um, um, the odd attack rather than kind of just like, you know, constant urban warfare. So that I think is a bit of the story that we're often missing in British media, which is Netanyahu's popularity in Israel is nowhere near his popularity in the British media. I just think discourse in this country has gone you know, it, it's incredibly bizarre. I mean, thank God, luckily, um, there are, are, our news stations are still inviting Palestinians on and they keep speaking truth to power um, whenever they do go on Sky or BBC. We're going to show you one of those interviews in a moment. Robert with a five, a ground invasion of Gaza is what Hamas wants to grab the IDF by the belt. The IDF has been a police force that drops bombs from jets for a long time. I think that's really interesting. I mean, something that's been sort of fascinating and you know, difficult to work out over the past few weeks is what Hamas actually wanted from this. Then their actions were so extreme that they were clearly trying to provoke a response, right? And I think the response they wanted probably was a ground invasion. One, because that means they can fight Israel on terrain, which is, um, you know, to their advantage, because as you say there, it's, Israel has sort of enormous, phenomenal superiority when it comes to conventional warfare. Um, but if there was to be sort of urban warfare, then Hamas would obviously come into its own. Um, also, I think, Presumably, um, Hamas were provoking Israel to take extreme action to try and raise um, the stakes and put Palestine back on the international agenda, which they have achieved, right? Um, so, I mean, as we as we say often on this, um, I think the news of sort of the atrocities that have, uh, have come out from southern Israel are clearly not things um, one can endorse. But, I mean, Israel is basically giving Hamas everything they wanted, which is, is, is to say they are reacting in a way which is clearly um, bloodthirsty, essentially. Um, and over the top, and that is 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 rightly um, meaning the world is is having sympathy with with Palestine. And it's being put on the map. They can't just ignore um, the occupation and hope to sort of continue their lives as usual. Mainstream media in Britain isn't meant to keep us informed. It isn't about relaying facts or providing useful context. More often than not, it exists to serve the rich and the powerful. But we say, fuck that. You funders, listeners like you who have chosen to back independent, truthful media. If you can, please consider donating one hour's wage per month or whatever you can afford at navaramedia.com forward slash support. We couldn't do this without you, so thank you. Let's go to our next story. Israel risks losing the information war in its latest bombardment on Gaza. And if it does, it will have a lot to do with Palestinians pushing back against biased mainstream media narratives. Yara Eid is a Palestinian journalist and human rights advocate who appeared on Sky News this weekend. 
It has been two weeks since Hamas first launched its attack on Israel. It saw 1,400 people killed. Since then, Palestinian officials say that more than 4,000 people have died in Gaza. Reporting on the war has been personal for Palestinian journalist and human rights advocate Yara, Yara Eid, who joins me now. Uh, Yara, thank you for joining us here on Sky News. I understand that recent events have caused you uh, personally a great deal of grief and pain. Well, I lost more than 30 members of my immediate family, and they were civilians. They were not part of any militant group. They, most of them were children. 17 of them are children. Um, not only that, but my best friend is a journalist, was a journalist, and Israel killed him in cold blood on the 7th of October um, while he was covering um, the Aries border Um and he was wearing a press vest. He was wearing his um, helmet. And I, I just want to say before I continue talking about what's happening, when you first introduced what's happening, you said more than 1,400 people have been killed in Israel and more than 4,000 in Palestine have died. I think language is really important to use because language, as a journalist, you have the moral responsibility to report on what's happening. Palestinians don't just die. They get killed. They are actually being um, subjected to ethnic cleansing, to genocide for the last 75 years. I mean, that's so powerful and, and, and so well put. And I suppose I, I really think what's shifting the dial here on the one hand, it does seem like the bombardment of Gaza is like nothing we've seen before. You know, people on the ground are saying this is this is not like what we've seen before. This is way more intense. This is way more deadly. Way more people are dying, right? At the same time, it does seem like there are more people speaking to the mainstream media who know people who have, you know, been experiencing the, the horrific reality on the ground in Gaza. And that makes it harder to just see these as oh, they're these faceless, um, nameless people in the distance, which is which is how often um, people from countries who aren't allied to the UK are seen, you know, nameless, faceless, they don't really matter. The people who matter are our are, are allies and their citizens and everyone else is basically anonymous. The fact that there are Palestinians going on on television and saying, actually, you know, this isn't abstract. My friends, my family, they are dying in this, they're being killed um, in, in these attacks, in this bombardment. And then that leads obviously to the second point, which she made so articulately there, which was that in Sky's intro, they said that Israelis were killed and Palestinians died. So using the active voice for when Israelis die and using the passive voice for when Palestinians die, right? Obviously the Israelis were killed in those attacks and the Palestinians were killed in Israel's bombardment. Let's go back to the interview. You also mentioned that this is a Hamas-Israel war. This is not it. And framing it as such is very misleading because it uh, poses the thing that, that Israel is an equal power, but it's an occupying power. And it actually has the responsibility of protecting all civilian lives and children in Gaza. But what we've been seeing is more than 1,700 of those who are killed are children. So two really important points there. Saying this is the Israel-Hamas war is suggesting that, yeah, this is a war between a country and a, and a militant group, right? But it's clearly not. This is a war between the Israeli government and the Israeli army and uh, a, a, a territory of 2.2 million people, right? They are carpet bombing. This is not a targeted attack on Hamas. We have seen over 5,000 people dying, according to Gazan officials. And according to the UN, we're seeing you know 40% of all homes being damaged or destroyed in Gaza. To what extent when you've got an occupying force bombing a people they occupy, 
you can even call it a war because there aren't you know there aren't two independent states which are going up against one another so it's, it's not what we normally think of as a war i mean at the same time you know obviously you know the 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 um algerians um when they fought back against the french that was called the algerian war of independence so you can have a war of a people against their occupier but it's uh, it's very different i think to the sort of most the way that it's normally portrayed in the media, which is you've got this, this, th these two independent countries. One of them has attacked the other. You know, they're saying this started when Hamas attacked Israel, and now Israel has the right to fight back against this other independent country which attacked them. No, you have one entity which is occupying the other. That's how this started. Let's go to the last question in the interview. Hamas launched the attack on Israel. Um, as a Palestinian, what, what did you ex expect would happen next? Well, I, I think, again, I'm sorry, but I think this is <laughs> misleading because this is, you can't water down what's been happening about the attack on the 7th of October. Let's talk about 2014. Let's talk about 2021. Let's talk about all the aggressions, you know, Palestinians in Gaza. Me personally, let's not talk about Palestinians in Gaza. I've lived through um, four horrible aggressions. I've lived... That's actually why I left Gaza in the first place. I saw people got, uh, getting cut into pieces in front of my eyes when I was 14 years old. I spent the last seven years trying to get um, therapy to get over my PTSD, my traumatic um, experience of just living there. So this is, again, you're misleading by saying it's a Hamas attack. You need to say what's been happening. We can't look at it just by looking at what's happened on the 7th of October. Why are you not talking about all of the other attacks on worshippers in Al-Aqsa Mosque, on, you know, kidnapping women and raping them in Israeli jails. You know, all these um, uh, uh, Palestinians who are being killed in the West Bank. Why are you not asking me about them? Hamas does not operate there. Uh, Yara Eid, uh, good to get your perspective on Sky News. Thank you very much for joining us. Really, really powerful answer. I, mean, I think it's important to say, that, you know, sometimes people say, how dare, she, how dare the host ask that question? Now, the host asked a question because she wanted an answer, right? So the host isn't necessarily, you know, putting forward her, her view. Um, but I do think that sort of the bias is in, it's not, it's, no, it's not specific to Sky, is it? It's just how, what is the sort of common sense by which this conflict, this occupation is covered in the Western media? It's completely different to how the Western media covers Ukraine, for example. No one calls it the Ukraine-Russia conflict. They call it the Ukraine war, the invasion of Ukraine, the occupation of Ukraine. It's not the, not the Ukraine-Russia conflict yet. This is the Israel-Palestine conflict, this intractable conflict between the, these two entities that just can't agree to get along. No, there's one entity which is occupying another entity. It's an occupation. It has a lot more um, in common with, with Russia and Ukraine than, um, I, suppose, I mean, how are they talking about it? Potentially, I don't know. So I, I'm not exactly sure what the comparison would be. I suppose maybe they're talking about it a bit more like it's like Pakistan and India when they were com when they were sort of in, in conflict with each other. I thought the second response about it not being a Hamas-Israel war is a really pertinent one because what we've seen, even just from October the 7th, is an escalation of aggression in the West Bank. So you have Palestinians in the West Bank being detained, being arrested. There are reports emerging of absolutely appalling treatment um, being meted out to Palestinians while in Israeli custody. You've got conditions of curfew, of effective lockdown across huge parts of the West Bank, the closing down of checkpoints. And you've even had an Israeli strike on Janine in the West Bank. 
allegedly Hamas was operating out of uh, the West Bank, but the West Bank is not controlled by Hamas. So this is not merely an Israel-Hamas war. It is a war being waged against the people of Palestine, both in the West Bank and in Gaza. And I think when you look at what's going on with the arrests of Arab Israelis um, being accused of supporting Hamas uh, simply for showing solidarity with the people of Gaza, I think you've also got a good case to make about this impacting, being waged uh, you know, through the criminal justice system on Palestinians in Israel as well. Um, and just, just to sort of respond to something you said about um, the host, I, I agree that hosts put questions to guests in order to elicit a response from them. It doesn't mean that the host believes in the question that they're asking. But the line of questioning that was taken by that host uh, with Yara Eid was totally devoid of any historical context. So once again, it's beginning the conversation of Israel and Palestine on October 7th, rather than the illegal occupation, rather than the bombardments of Gaza that we've seen periodically, 2021, uh, 2014, Operation Cast Lead, before that. And so it's a narrative which betrays a pro-Israel bias because you're unable to talk about the wider context, which you could argue led to October the 7th. And the second thing is that I agree that something which is really different about how this period of violence is being covered is is different um, in that you're seeing many more Palestinian voices on British media than you would have decades ago. But I I feel quite uncomfortable when a Palestinian woman is having to say, multiple members of my family have just been killed. I have PTSD from being a child and seeing people cut to pieces in front of me. Um, it reminds me of what Mohammed Al-Kurd said about having to be the perfect victim and having to constantly show your bruises. And I think that when you have a line of questioning which is devoid of historical context and it forces Palestinians into having to sort of show their bruises, demonstrate how they're the perfect victim, it does then keep the discussion, I think, in this really limited place in a way which ultimately benefits the state of Israel because Israel gets to define what the context is, and at best, Palestinians get to say, oh, well, I suffer too. That's still a, a, a media framing, which doesn't recognize the Palestinian cause in the same way that it advocates Israeli narratives. Next story. In times of war, it's best not to believe the claims made by belligerents at face value, and that especially applies to Israel, who have been found to have told multiple lies to the international press. In recent years, that includes lying about the killing of Shireen Abu Akhla. They said Palestinians did it. They later admitted it was them. And just last week, Israel released what was supposed to be an intercepted call between Islamic Jihad fighters admitting to accidentally bombing a Gazan hospital. Most experts have since judged the call to be a fake. And the credulity-stretching claims just keep coming from Israeli politicians. Take a look at this exclusive on Sky News. The president of Israel has told Sky News that some of the Hamas fighters who carried out the October the 7th attack were carrying instructions on how to make chemical weapons. 
Isaac Herzog says Israeli forces discovered the material on the body of dead fighters in Kibbutz Beri, where many residents were killed or kidnapped. The documents, complete with diagrams, were shown to our Middle East correspondent, Alistair Bunkle, in an exclusive interview. Sky News is unable to independently verify those claims. President Herzog also said in the interview that much or most of Gaza is functioning. We should say that we have blurred a page which shows bomb-making ingredients. This is material which was found on the body of one of those sadistic villains. It's Al-Qaeda material, official Al-Qaeda material. We're dealing with ISIS, Al-Qaeda, and Hamas. This is what we're dealing with. And in, those, in, and in this material, there were instructions how to produce chemical weapons. This is, it speaks about uh, uh, arson and it speaks uh, uh, about uh, uh, various chemicals uh, that uh, come out and produce chemical weapons. Simple as that. Now, obviously, what the Israeli president is saying there could be true. Like, we don't know. But is it really plausible that Hamas fighters would be going around with a manual with Al-Qaeda scrawled across it in big capital letters, by the way, in English? No, just going around, Al-Qaeda? Why? Um, I also think um, the day of an attack seems a little bit late in the day um, for a Hamas fighter to be going through chemical weapons recipes. Was the idea they'd be sifting through the cleaning products in the cupboard um, under sinks of homes they'd raided, hoping to concoct something that explodes? To me, it doesn't pass the smell test. And since publishing that interview, Sky have posted a clarification in an article online. Following the interview with Sky News, the president's office released a statement with further details about the discovery of the documents. The documents were found on a USB stick on a dead Hamas fighter, they claimed. The source was an Al-Qaeda manual dated 2003, they said. So the Hamas fighter would have needed to find a laptop to plug his USB stick in and then found the chemical ingredients all before the IDF hunted him down. As I say, I personally don't buy it. We do have another update on the story. Seamus Malikovsali is a journalist and writer on the Middle East. He tweeted this update. I found the document Herzog is holding. It's not a chemical weapons manual. It's an amateurly published biography of a World Trade Center bomber, Ramzi Youssef. It contains no instructions, only mentions of Youssef's early plan to use chemicals. It isn't classified or secret. It's a PDF. For one, I, I'm not really sure if it is the case um, that sort of militants generally go into war situations sort of loaded with USB sticks. But even if it was, it's not exactly surprising that there might be you know, some militant fighters in Hamas who take some inspiration from other militant Islamic organizations. Right? It doesn't show a connection between the two of them. It shows that one person downloaded, I think, a self-published biography that didn't contain any instructions as to how to actually make chemical weapons. But what's going on here, I think, seems to be very clearly, you know, the Israelis, despite the fact that atrocities have undoubtedly taken place, it's not enough for them. One, they want us to think that Hamas are ISIS. And two, I think the chemical weapons thing is to say, you know, this is a sort of weapons of mass destruction story. Hamas isn't just a threat to Israelis, it's a threat to the world because they might, you know, look under some sinks and get some bleach and make a chemical weapon. Ash, what do you think is going on here? I think that this has been a consistent tactic of the Israeli state, which is you flood the zone with shit, in the words of Steve Bannon. And what you do is you sow the maximum amount of confusion, 
in order to shore up support from Western countries and delegitimize those who are criticizing you. And I think that it's something which is almost reflexive for the Israeli government at this point. I mean, it's something that we saw in the follow in, in the aftermath of, of the Anglican bombing. Now, I, I agree that that there has to be more independent veri- verification, has to be uh, an ICC investigation. I think that the forensic architecture account is plausible, but completely agree with them when they say that this needs much more in-depth investigation. But regardless of where you stand over who did what, what is undeniable is that in the immediate aftermath of the Anglican bombing, uh, the Anglican hospital bombing, Israel comes out with a load of manufactured, falsified nonsense. So first is the tweet alleging that it was a misfired rocket, but attaching to that tweet video, which appears to be from 2021, then claiming that it found, you know, the smoking gun, an audio recording from an intercepted mobile phone conversation between two Hamas fighters, which when analyzed by independent experts by Channel 4, suggests that it is not a legitimate audio recording. These are two stereo tracks which have been recorded separately. The syntax isn't right. The accent isn't right. This is not an actual authentic intercepted phone call from Hamas fighters. It's a way of just totally, I think, um, saturating the news cycle and particularly saturating the news cycle in allied Western countries with material which will muddy the waters uh, and in this case, um, I think, feed into a wider Islamophobic narrative. So Israel isn't fighting Hamas. They're actually fighting Al-Qaeda. They're actually fighting ISIS. They're actually fighting all of these other Muslim enemies uh, that the West has declared war on before. And it doesn't matter that, you know, these things get discredited um, time after time after time. The Israeli state gets treated with a level of legitimacy and good faith that other parties in the conflict are not treated with. And there's a level of credulity about these claims, which end up bolstering the Israeli war machine in the bombardment of Gaza. Let's go to our final story, which which has a sort of glimmer of, 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 of good news to it. A tiny bit of justice. Two weeks ago, Sky's Kay Burley tried to concoct a row about David Lammy speaking at an event with Hussam Zomlot, the Palestinian ambassador to the UK. What about your opposite number, David Lammy, sharing a platform uh, with the uh, Palestinian um, ambassador who um, basically said the Israelis had it coming? Will the Shadow Foreign Secretary sit with the Palestinian ambassador appearing with him um, at an event, um, given that the Palestinian ambassador basically said um, the last couple of days that Israel had it coming. Is it appropriate that the shadow foreign secretary sits with a man who said what he said? This is an atrocious comment by the uh, Palestinian ambassador to the UK. Where are we with the foreign secretary, the shadow foreign secretary at the moment, um, sharing a stage with a man who has said Uh, Israel had it coming. Now, there was a problem with that line of questioning. Hassam Zoblot has never said Israel had it coming with reference to the 7th of October attacks. Instead, he said this, what is tragic is the blindness and deafness of the world and the international community for so many years over the warnings we have been saying that this was coming. Israel knew that this was coming their way. 
Now, that is completely different from what Kay Burley said. She said Zomlot said Israel had it coming, which means Israel deserved those attacks. Zomlot is instead saying the Palestinian Liberation Organization have been warning that if the situation in Gaza didn't improve, something like this could happen. Elsewhere in the interview, we called it tragic, of course. Um, they are completely different statements. Yet when I pointed that out on Twitter, Kay Burley was, let's say, dismissive. So I tweeted, this is really terrible journalism from Kay Burley and reminiscent of a playground shit stirrer. You can't just make up provocative quotes and then demand others respond to them, which is what she did. Kay Burley said, don't message me, Michael. I have no interest in anything you have to say. So Kay Burley might not have cared about lying on air, but it seems her bosses or perhaps Sky's lawyers disagreed. Sky issued this on air statement this weekend. Now, on Sky News Breakfast early this month, we reported that the Palestinian ambassador to the UK, Dr. Hussam Zomlot, said in reference to the Hamas attacks on Israel on the 7th of October that Israel had it coming. We recognise that this was not what Dr. Zomlot had said in an earlier interview. Sky News also accepts that this gave a potentially misleading representation of Dr. Zomlot's views. It sounds like a lawyer's statement, doesn't it? And as far as I know, Kay Burley hasn't said anything personally, and there has been no apology. And I would hazard to say um, that that apology there had less prominence than Kay Burley putting the false claim to various top-level politicians. Um, Ash, I don't think this is good enough, do you? No, it's, it's absolutely not good enough. Because what Kay Burley did was first, she misrepresented what Hassan Zomlot has said and delivered it as a misleading paraphrase. Oh, well, he basically said Israel had it coming. And then you could see her working herself up into a lather across subsequent interviews saying, well, this is a disgusting comment from uh, the Palestinian ambassador who said Israel had it coming. And that is just an out and out fabricated quote. Now, if you fabricate a quote from somebody. And in particular, if you fabricate a quote from the head of the Palestinian mission at a time where Israel is at war with a section of the Palestinian population, you should be held to account for that. Now, at the very least, what that would mean is that I think Kay Burley should be the one to issue the retraction and Kay Burley should be the one to apologize. But I actually think if you are a senior journalist and you are making up a quote, you make up a quote and you behave with an outrageous level of contempt and hostility towards people who are calling you out, I think your job should be on the line. This is just out and out journalistic um, malpractice. And to put it in a different way, if a BBC journalist fabricated a quote from the Israeli ambassador, do you think they'd still have their job? Absolutely not. Yeah, I mean, I, I, the fact that they they just think that on air, it's not even an apology, it's an on-air clarification. Like, uh, two weeks later. Um, some news um, that's broken while we were on air. Um, so apparently the Tel Aviv news channel's I-24 is reporting sources within Gaza as saying the finalization of a potential deal brokered by Qatar um, was underway for the release of about 50 um, abductees who hold dual citizenship. Um, so officials of Red Cross are believed to be on their way to receive the group, I-24 said, and the release could be concluded in the hours ahead if there are no obstacles. So that'd be a pretty significant development. Um, of course, we will be talking about that tomorrow. Um, for now, Ash, thank you so much for joining me. Thanks so much for having me and see you next time. See you next time. And thank you all for tuning in. 
Um, of course, the show is back tomorrow from 6 p.m. For now, you've been watching Navarra Media. Good night.